Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we've been walking at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church through the, through the epistle of 1 Peter. We've made it to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses, 17, verses 13 to 17. This morning, I want to focus on verses 15 to 17. And the title of the message today is A Defense for Your Hope. A Defense for Your Hope. If you would stand with me as we read God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. The Word of our God says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Sovereign Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us this opportunity to gather with your church today. Father, it's good to be among friends, but it's even better to be among the family of faith. And Father, I pray that as, as we look to your word right now, that we would hear clearly from you. Father, I pray that we would not be hearers only, but as the book of James says, that we would be doers of your word also. Father, we recognize that that's not anything that we can muster up and do on our own. It has to be aided and helped by the Holy Spirit of God. So we come to you this morning dependent upon Him, upon His mercy, upon His grace, and upon His help. We pray this for the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the title of the message today from 1 Peter chapter 3 is A Defense for Your Hope. Defense strategies are extremely important. For many things in life that you're trying to do well, it's important to have a defense strategy. Growing up, my brother and I often played checkers. And when he and I played checkers, I don't remember ever that I can remember winning a game of checkers because I never thought far enough ahead defensively. You can be good at offense at checkers, but if you can't see far enough ahead to see what's going to happen, if you don't think defensively, it's always going to come back and bite you. You never do well in a game of checkers if you only think about the offensive moves. Well, defensive strategies are more important than just in board games. If you go to law school and you become an attorney, they're going to teach you defense strategies in order to best defend, to, to best defend your clients in court. Defense strategies are also important in military operations. If you're a general in the army, it's important to know how to execute an operation, but if you don't have a defense strategy in place to protect your people, if things go wrong, it's not going to go well. Defense strategies are also very important in the world of sports. If I ever watch the NBA, I often find myself thinking, do people play defense anymore? Because defensive strategies can win games. Again, defense is very important. What on earth does that have to do, though, with 1 Peter chapter 3? 
As we look to the letter of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter has been making the case that those who follow Christ are called to live very distinctly and very differently than others who are in the world because followers of Christ are often persecuted and criticized for following Christ. 1 Peter as a whole, if you read the whole letter, it deals with persecutions and sufferings of Christians. And Peter writes this letter showing those who follow Jesus that it's not going to be easy. Actually, he says that you are going to walk through various trials where you're tried by fire. But Peter also says that even in the midst of those trials, we can rejoice, he says, because we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, a, to, a, to, a, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and un, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So as Peter's writing this letter, he promises all believers, for those who stay the course, for those who endure, that they will receive the eschatological blessings available to them in Christ on the last day, and Peter says it will be well worth it. On the last day, if we endure, we will receive our full inheritance that Jesus has purchased for us. But Peter writes this for us today, and he's telling us that in between today and that day, we must know how to live in light of sufferings and persecutions in a way that's honorable in the sight of all people, and in, and in a way that's evangelistically fruitful to those people. So Peter's readers need to know how to live and how to relate to those evildoers and persecutors who will persecute them for their faith in Jesus. In the time between today and that day, we need to know how to relate to them. Peter essentially is saying you need a defense strategy for your hope in Jesus. So the main idea in the passage that I've read before you today is that while Christians live in a difficult world that can be very hostile towards Christians at times, we must be prepared with a defense strategy in order to win others to faith, which involves, first, if you're taking notes, honoring Christ above all, second, being ready to make a defense, and finally, making a defense with a Christ-like attitude. Which brings us to the first reality I want to set before us this morning. We must honor Christ above all. We must honor Christ above all. Look back with me about halfway through verse 14. The Bible says, Have no fear of them, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter writes the command here to honor Christ the Lord, and he sets it in contrast to fearing those who may do evil against you. Instead of fearing those who may do evil against you, Peter is telling them, don't fear those because they are not the Lord. Rather, instead, fear the Lord. Those evildoers are not reigning upon the throne of heaven. Those evildoers are not in any way in control of what's happening around you. Therefore, since they're not reigning upon the throne of heaven, they don't need to reign upon the throne of your hearts either. Brothers and sisters, Peter is instructing us not to fear. Misplaced fear can be absolutely damaging. Misplaced fear is a terrible mechanism of control in your life. Many times you are most controlled by what you are most fearful of. We want to be in control of what happens to us, but we look around and we realize we're really not in control 
of what happens to us, and then we start to fear what we cannot control, and then our fear controls us. You ever experienced that before? I'm going to say that again. We want to be in control of what happens to us, but we're not in control of what happens to us. Therefore, we fear what we can't control, so our fear controls us. You could say it this way too. Whatever you fear is typically what's reigning upon the throne of your heart. And whatever reigns upon the throne of your heart ends up controlling your desires, it controls your thoughts, it controls your wants, it controls your actions. Do you see the link there? What you fear most often ends up being what you do. Here's a quick example. Maybe you're fearful about not having enough money. So what do you do? It affects the way that you live. If you're fearful you don't have enough money and you have financial anxiety, it'll control you. It may cause you to overwork to the point of neglecting someone very important. It may con- you may overwork to the uh, extent of neglecting something very important. The fear of financial anxiety may cause you to be greedy with what God has given you. The fear of financial anxiety may cause you to worry. And worry is very unhealthy. So what you often fear controls you and sits on the highest ranking position of prominence in your heart. So when we come back to what Peter is warning against here, he's teaching that the fear of man works the exact same way. He's teaching that if you fear man, it's going to control you. If you fear the evildoers as you are faithfully following Christ, you are allowing those evildoers to sit on the highest ranking position of prominence in your heart. And if those evildoers are upon the throne of your heart, you're never going to be able to live as Christ has called you to live. So Peter writes... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Sanctify Him in your hearts. Set Him as the first place position on your hearts. Don't let those evildoers, don't let the fear of man control you. Don't let the fear of what they may do to you control you because Jesus is Lord and those evildoers are not upon the throne of heaven. Now, if Jesus were not reigning upon the throne of heaven, yes we would have all the reason in the world to fear, wouldn't we? But because Jesus reigns upon the throne today, we know that there's not one single thing that can happen outside of His control, and because of that, we don't have to sing, the fear of man has taught my heart to fear. No, we sing with John Newton, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved.'" Since Christ is the Holy One upon the throne, we must learn to devote our hearts to Him and to set Him first on the throne of our heart. Commentator Tom Schreiner writes this, The heart is the origin of all human behavior, and from it flows everything we do. Thus setting apart Christ as Lord in our heart is not merely a private reality, but will be evident to all when believers suffer for their faith. The inner and outer life are inseparable because what happens to us within will inevitably be displayed without, outwardly, especially when one suffers. If Christ has the first place in our hearts, others, unbelievers, will no doubt be able to realize that there's something different about us and we have a different hope than the rest of the world has. We actually have a living hope. And brothers and sisters, if you sanctify Christ in your heart, if you set Him upon the throne of your heart as the one who is holy, then we can live in a way that we are called to live, and we can live in a way that is actually winsome of unbelievers. It's evangelistically fruitful to outsiders. 
That's the first step to being prepared with a defense strategy. Honor Christ in your hearts as holy. Second, we must be prepared to make a defense. We must be prepared to make a defense. Look back to verse 15 with me again. God's Word in verse 15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. The Greek word here in verse 15 that's translated to our English word defense is the word apologian, which is the same word that we get the word apologetics from. The study of apologetics is the study of how to provide a defense, how to show proof that something's actually factual. In seminary, I had a, an apologetics class, and it was extremely difficult. I made it out with an A, but barely. And we studied all sorts of things, ranging from the way to prove the resurrection of Christ, the existence of God, the problem of evil, even some philosophical and metaphysical arguments, most of which went right over my head. But the entire class taught us how to build a logical and truthful argument from Scripture based upon a specific topic. We were trained how to build an apologia, a defense. Well, here in verse 15, Peter is telling these believers, you need to be ready to give an apologia, a defense. You need to be ready to give a defense. But now I want you to notice the subject to which Peter says that we need to be ready to give a defense. He tells them we have to be ready to give a defense regarding the internal hope that we have because we belong to Christ. It's a distinctly Christian hope that will allow us to endure persecution, that will allow us to endure difficulties because we know that on the last day, all things will be reconciled into their right place. On the last day, we will no longer face hardships because we will be with Christ and we will have our joy forevermore in Christ. So when unbelievers see us living in a way that, that shows forward the, the eternal hope, the internal hope that we have from belonging to Christ, it's evangelistically fruitful. It is truly a defense for the faith. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, that one of the ways that we are set apart from the rest of the world, he says that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Christians don't grieve like the rest of the world. The rest of the world grieves as if there is no hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Since Christ died and rose again, we have all of the hope in the world for eternity following this life. We know that all wrongs will be made right, sin will be no more, and as Revelation 21 tells us, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, there will be no death, no mourning, no pain, for the former things will have passed away. And brothers and sisters, that glorious reality fills us with hope today. Even the present difficulties right now in front of us, and I know that a lot of us are this way, we look forward to what we have coming in the life to come, but all we can see sometimes is tunnel vision. We see immediately what's right in front of us, but we need to be able to look around the corner and catch a glimpse of what is right around the corner to be able to see that we have an eternal hope in Christ that the world doesn't have. Even with present difficulties right in front of us, we look around the corner and we see eternal life 
with Christ's life and joy and peace. And that's a defense that we're able to put forward to the world. A defense that Peter tells us is evangelistically fruitful. And the, the, the defense that we put forward is not anything clever that we come up with on our own. The defense that we put forward is the gospel message. The defense is that we had once turned our backs on God and rebelled against God, but that God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son to live a life of holiness and obedience in our place. And then that sinless Son of God was arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross and sacrificed in our place in order to, to, to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law in our place. But the gospel doesn't stop there, does it? On the third day, God raised him from the grave and gave him victory over sin and death so that all who look unto Christ and put their faith in Him and turn from their sin and trust in Him will be gifted with that eternal hope that He offers us today. We are filled with hope because of the reality that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Our defense and our hope in the midst of hardships, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of sufferings, is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel message. I want to ask you this morning, are you prepared to make a defense? There is coming a time where you need to be ready to make a defense. Are you this morning, this very day, ready to make a defense? One of the pretty common answers that I hear regularly is people will say, I would love to be able to make a defense. I, I, I would love to be able to share the gospel. I just don't think that I know enough. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you when Peter writes this letter to these Christians, he's not writing this letter to biblical scholars. He's writing this to Christians who have simply experienced the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's saying that each of these believers, it doesn't matter who they are, they need to be ready to make a defense for the hope that's in them. From the seven-year-old Christian that can simply say, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sin, to the, to the person who's been walking with Christ faithfully for 60 years. It doesn't matter where you are on this scope of Christian maturity. Peter says you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. All of us must be ready to share what Christ has done for us. I think we find a wonderful example from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 to 26. If you've read through the book of Acts, I know that we've studied together as a church through the book of Acts some years ago. Paul had been preaching about Jesus and His resurrection. And the Jews were upset about the resurrection that Paul was preaching, and they had Paul arrested, and they had him thrown into prison. And Paul had to make a defense for what he had been preaching several times. Each time Paul was called upon to make his defense, it gave him an opportunity to go back and preach about the resurrection again. He was thrown into prison for preaching the resurrection, and then each time he was called upon to give his defense, he preached about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So the preaching about the resurrection, it made it far beyond just the temple. It made it far beyond just the Jews in the temple. It actually made it before a Roman tribune. It made it before the governor Felix. It made it before King Agrippa II and all those who were around when he was giving his defense. Paul preached the gospel to them. He preached to them that Jesus had died and been raised. 
So as Paul was standing before King Agrippa II in Acts 26, Paul recounted his salvation testimony again. He told King Agrippa, he said, King Agrippa, you know and these others can testify that I used to live a life according to the ways of the Pharisees. I lived a very strict Jewish life. Paul went on in his defense and he preached the gospel. He said, this is what happened to me. I was on the Damascus Road. I was on my way to persecute Christians, but I met Christ the Lord instead. And then he preached the gospel again to King Agrippa. And King Agrippa responded by saying, he said, in such a short time, would you try to persuade me to be a Christian? Paul used arguments like, why would you think, why why do any of you think that it's incredible that God raises the dead? Paul kept basically just pleading and pleading and pleading with King Agrippa to put his faith in Christ. So Agrippa says, in such a short time, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul responds and says, whether it's short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who stand before me, all who hear my voice today might be a Christian except for these chains that I wear. Brothers and sisters, we need to be able to look to Paul's example. The way that he gave a defense, and we need to be prepared to give a defense of our own. I almost bet you that it's certain that none of us will ever stand before kings or governors to give a defense. But without a doubt, I can say that some of you in this room very well may stand before a boss at work and say, I can't do this because of the way that God tells me to live. Maybe you stand in front of some family or friends. Maybe you stand before someone that you're close with and you have to say, I can't participate in this because I'm trying to live according to God's words. And brothers and sisters, this passage is telling us that in those moments, in those very moments that you get to stand and make a defense to someone, it's not an opportunity to back down in embarrassment and shame. It's a strategic and timely moment to share about the hope that is within you through the death and resurrection of Christ. The defense that we make is a perfect moment for gospel advancement. And God designed it that way. So as we do that, brothers and sisters, Peter tells us to do it evangelistically, and he also tells us to do it in a very specific way, which is the final reality I want to set before us this morning. Look back to verse 15 with me. The final reality is we must make this defense with a Christ-like attitude. Verse 15, Peter wrote, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Listen to this. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The Bible says you're called upon to make a defense, but there's a certain way. If you're going to make a defense, make sure you do it the right way. Do it with gentleness and respect. And brothers and sisters, I can confess before you today, this hits close to home for me. It hit close to home as I was studying this week because I have realized time and time and time again that I have so much learning to do in this 
aspect, saying things with gentleness and respect. Even after some sermons I've preached, I've gone back and I've listened to them and I've thought, my goodness, I can stand a little more gentleness and respect even in my tone and attitude. So the Lord still has much work to do in me in this area. Being gentle and respectful doesn't mean at all backing away from the truth. Being gentle and respectful doesn't mean that we are embarrassed of what's correct. But it does mean that we are careful in the way that we deliver the truth because we're called to do it in a way that imitates Christ. Throughout all of the trial of Jesus, you never once see Him respond in a way that is sinful or not gentle or respectful. Being gentle and respectful means that we put forward the truth and the truth is most important, but the manner in which we put forward the truth is very important too. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he wrote, If I speak in the tongue, the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He wrote, If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith so as to remove mountains, but if I have not love... I am nothing. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to sound like a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. I don't think anyone in this room wants to sound like a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. Therefore, we must be very careful that when we present the truth, we do it in a Christ-like way, with a Christ-like attitude, with gentleness and respect. I think this is especially apparent as we live in a world that's so divided. Do we live in a world that's divided? Anybody think that? I think everybody knows that. So we have to be very careful not to let the influence of the world, the way that the world interacts with one another, we can't let the way that the world interacts with one another affect, influence the way that we as believers interact with the world. The Word of God is clear here. We interact with the world in a way that's gentle and respectful. There are many times when we want to be bold for Christ and we want to take a stand for Christ and that's good. We should be bold for Christ. The Bible calls us to be bold for Christ. But I think that sometimes in the midst of trying to be bold for Christ, we allow ourselves to get in the way. And when we let ourselves get in the way, even if the truth is being told, those who are listening to our defense most likely won't even hear the words that we say if we don't do it with gentleness and respect. I think that we hear stories like the story of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, as he took a stand for Christ. He was standing, Luther was standing there at the council at the Diet of Worms in 1521, and the council commanded Luther to recant his writings or he would be excommunicated and condemned. And Luther took a bold stand for Christ. And you remember what he said most likely. He stood there before the council and he said, Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. That moment called for a bold response and some bold words. Luther made his defense and it was awesome. And as Christians today, we are inspired by stories like that. We want to be bold too. We want to take a strong stand upon the Word of God. And we should. God's Word, right here in this very passage, has called us to be prepared to make a defense. But here's what we need to recognize. Not every issue that arises is a here I stand, I can do no other kind of moment. 
And when we try to take every little issue that arises and make it a here-I-stand kind of moment, it's easy for us to lose gentleness and respect that we're called to have. We're called to make a defense, yes. But we're called to do it a certain way. And if we don't make a defense in a way that is gentle and respectful, we may look more like jerks looking for a fight than we do followers of Christ. These words that we say, yes, they are important. The truth that we speak is most important. But if our defense is not paired with love and gentleness and respect, it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And that's it. As we come to a close this morning, I want to ask you again, are you ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you? Are you ready? Are you ready to share what Christ has done for you? Because most often, we will not foresee when those moments are coming. But they are coming. There is coming a time where you will be called upon to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Are you ready today? Are you prepared to share what Christ has done for you? Are you prepared with a defense strategy? Are you honoring Christ the Lord as first place upon the throne of your heart? Are you ready to make a defense when it's your time? Are you prepared to do it in a Christ-like way with an attitude of gentleness and respect? I pray that you are. For all of us here following Christ this morning, that's what God's Word calls us to do from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. And as we come to a close this morning, I want to ask you as well, do you have this hope this internal hope? Do you have this hope that Peter writes about in you at all? I know that most of you in this room do, but I would never want to take for granted a moment to tell you that if you don't have this hope in you, that you can have it today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter wrote that according to the mercy of God, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, living hope, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That tells us that this hope that Peter's writing about is not a hope that we can muster up and create on our own. It's a hope that originates from the fact that you've been born again by the Spirit of God through faith and the resurrection of Christ. I want to ask you this morning, do you have hope? Not only do you have hope, do you have this eschatological, looking forward to eternity kind of hope that will allow you to look past what's immediately in front of you in life in order to say, Jesus is worth living a holy, distinct, set-apart life because of the hope that is laying before me in Christ and getting to spend an eternity with Him. Do you have that hope this morning? The one and only way that you can have that true and abiding hope is if you have a true and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't yet laid a hold of that hope that's available to you in Christ. Maybe you've heard about this hope all of your life but never experienced it for yourself. If that's you today, I want to remind you that today is the day of salvation. 
And Jesus died on the cross and He rose again in order to give you this living hope through the resurrection of Himself from the dead. If you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, please do not leave this place today until you commit yourself to following Him. Go to Him in prayer. Ask Him for His forgiveness today. Trust that He's able to save you and tell Him that you want to commit yourself to following Him. Do you have this hope today? Let's pray. Sovereign God, I pray that You will take Your Word and apply it to our hearts in a way that we can't explain what You're doing in us. Father, I pray that You would use Your Word and give us hope. Not hope like the world has, just a worldly, I hope this happens, I hope this happens. Father, give us a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Help us to put our hope in Him because He is what we need. Father, I want to ask You that if there's anyone in here today that has not laid hold of the hope available to them through faith in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation.